All right, well, uh, we are continuing our look at the greatness of God, and great to see everybody tonight. Thanks for coming out. I uh, just want to make a couple of announcements. It's been a busy week. We'll have four podcasts this week, so if you enjoy listening to the teaching of God's Word, I encourage you to check those out uh, anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Just search for Not By Works, uh, or you can go to notbyworks.org slash podcast. So we did one yesterday with uh, Christian Underground News Network, uh, and we talked about... Uh, don't forget about the good news. <laughs> and there's so much negative stuff out there, we wanted to remind people of the good news. And so that was yesterday. Monday, I was on Stand Up for the Truth uh, with David Fiorazzo, and we talked about all kinds of stuff. He does, uh, does a great job of uh, queuing things up. Uh, so check those out. And then uh, we're really excited. Uh, we're going to start uh, a new event called Prophecy Night. And uh, it's going to be Tuesday nights instead of Wednesday. So the month of January, we'll finish up uh, the greatness of God. And if we, if we finish that in the next couple of weeks, then we'll do some Q&As and some other one-time deals. But then starting January 31st and going forward, we're going to meet on Tuesday nights. It's going to be an hour and a half from 6 to 7.30. We'll have 15 minutes of music, an hour of teaching, and then 15 minutes of Q&A. And it's going to be prophecy-focused. And so we're kind of wrapping up our Sunday morning 9 o'clock look at prophecy this month in the month of January. Then we'll shift gears for Sunday school to a different topic. But we want to just encourage you to kind of mark out on your calendars prophecy night, Tuesday nights. Make that our prophecy night. And, uh, you know, I know some people um, aren't that interested in prophecy. I get it. It's been a neglected teaching, really, throughout church history, but particularly since the Reformation. Uh, but I think for such a time as this, there's no greater topic to discuss. So as long as I'm able to teach and preach, I'm going to at least dedicate one time a week to talking about prophecy. And um, I think one of the mistakes that people made back during World War II is pastors neglected to focus on the intersection of God's prophecy with culture. And so they were blinded to what was really happening right under their noses. And we don't want that to happen uh, to us. So... Yeah, we'll say more about that in the, in the days uh, and weeks to come, but just want to put that out there and encourage you to spread the word. We're doing it Tuesday night so that folks from other churches who might have commitments on Wednesday nights might be able to, uh, to come out. And uh, we did this previously in Illinois for a number of years when, I was, when our ministry was based out of Illinois, and it was a Monday night deal. It was called Until He Returns, and we, had, uh, we got up to consistently the last year over 120 people, but they were from 20 different churches. It was amazing. It was just kind of the, the place to be on, on Monday nights. And so who knows what the Lord will do with this, uh, but uh, we're excited about it. So spread the word. Uh, we're going to be promoting it uh, on some of the Not By Works events that are upcoming. And uh, so Tuesday nights, Prophecy Night, starting January 31st. All right, with that, let's uh, continue to focus our attention on the attributes of God. Uh, we've gotten through, I think, seven or eight of them, and there's a few more that I want to touch on. This is not exhaustive. I mean, you could come up with dozens of things that God tells us about Himself in His Word, but I've kind of highlighted the top, uh, I don't know, let me see if I can go to the end here and find out. Top uh, 14 is what I put together for this series. Uh, and added the last few for this week. Uh, we won't probably get to them all, but uh, my notes are complete as of this week. And uh, we're talking here about the attributes of God because God's Word is, in fact, His way of saying, here I am, look at me. These, this is what you need to know about me. Uh, you know, understanding who God is is not subjective. 
Now, the average secularist will tell you it is. They'll say, God is whoever you want him to be. God is what you feel. God is what you see in nature. Uh, but that's not the case at all. Uh, God has empirically revealed himself to us in his word. And as you've heard me say many times, the Bible is the only standard for our beliefs, attitudes, and practices. So this is inherently a theological issue. Theology, of course, uh, comes from two Greek words, theos and logos, meaning a word and God, a word about God or the study of God. And, um, you know, we, we, from cover to cover, we have so much rich material to help us learn about the creator of the universe that really it's like a deep well that you can study a lifetime and never reach the bottom. But we, we want to make sure that everything we know and believe and think about God is supported from his self-revelation to us, uh, the Bible. So I know as we've gone through some of these, for some of you, maybe these are attributes you hadn't thought about. Uh, that's okay. That's what I'm saying. Theology is a lifelong study. Every time we study the Word, we grow in our knowledge. We learn new things. We're on, we never get to the place or should never get to the place where we say we've arrived. We've got it all figured out. You know, um, A lot of uh, people, especially in academia, have the mistaken notion that theology is a product rather than a process. And so you'll purchase books, systematic theology books, where uh, scholars will uh, uh, address the, t the ten areas of theology, you know, Bible, God, Christ, Holy Spirit, Church, uh, salvation, Satan, angels, and demons, um, eschatology, the end times, and so forth. Um, and they kind of you know, spend their lifetime studying, writing, putting it together, and they come up with either a huge volume or maybe multi-volumes, and they, they, they present it and say, here's my theology, I'm done. And there's nothing wrong with systematic theology. I'm a theologian. That's what my, phys my actual uh, degree is in and, and trade and passion. But when you get to the point where you think you can wrap it all up in a nice neat bow and put it on a table or a shelf, you've kind of missed the point. Theology is not a product. It's a process. Doctrine is a product. Doctrine is the product of doing theology. But theology is a process whereby we take all of the truth claims around us, run them through the grid of Scripture, and arrive at conclusions that the Bible supports. And the more we study the Bible, the more uh, we are, uh, must be willing to, to strip away the conclusions that we've come to that don't stand the test. And so it really is a process, and part of that process is getting to know God. And so most theological uh, books and uh, classes and, 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 and seminary courses and things that you might take are going to begin with the Bible first, the study of what the Bible says about itself, but then right off the bat you get into the study of God. What does God's Word say about Himself? And so that's what we're talking about here, those distinguishing characteristics of God's divine nature that are the essence of God. We're not picking these out of the air. We're actually uh, you know, getting these from the Word of God. And that's really a good test to apply to any uh, doctrinal statement of belief is where does it originate? Uh, so, for example, uh, how many of you believe in the doctrine of the Trinity? You should all raise your hand. Good. All right. Uh, where does that doctrine originate? Absolutely, in the Bible. Now, you'll look at some secular uh, 
uh, teachers of the sacred scriptures. You know, you can go to you can go to any university. You can go to Harvard University, uh, which I wouldn't send my dog to Harvard University, frankly. But uh, you can go to Harvard and you can take a course in the Bible. You understand that, right? Yeah. Uh, yes, yes, absolutely. I would send my cats uh, to uh, to Harvard uh, to Harvard University. No, um, no. I'm just. I mean, Harvard obviously it's a great school. It's got a great uh, you know curriculum on some areas. It's certainly great wisdom and knowledge in certain areas. But in terms of an overall worldview, it's obviously a very secular worldview. Uh, but my point is, you can go to any secular institute of higher learning and you can study the Bible, and they come at it as a institute of you know, as a, as a uh, you know, study of sacred writings and things like that, a literature-type class. So when you go to those places, they're going to tell you that the doctrine of the Trinity was man-made, it originated in the 4th century, and so forth and so on. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, the doctrine of the Trinity is a standard of orthodoxy, and as we just said, it originates from the Bible. Now, there are some long-held traditions, especially in the Roman Catholic Church, that don't originate from the Bible. They originate from tradition, from man's creeds and councils and decrees. And, you know, those need to be set aside because anything that contradicts the Bible cannot be true. The Bible is infallible, without error. It's inerrant, right? So, uh, so that's what I mean when I say the Bible is the only standard for our beliefs, attitudes, and practices. Other, other doctrinal uh, beliefs, such as the hypostatic union, who knows what the hypostatic union is? Who can give me a basic definition? Yeah. Christ is fully human and fully God. Exactly. Yep. Christ is fully God and, and fully man. Um, that might sound obvious, but the fact of the matter is that's a foundational truth. And where does it originate, by the way, Gary? Where does that doctrine originate? I've already given one <laughs> I was giving you a chance to get two right. I mean, that's a rare opportunity. A man's got to know his limitations. Now, the Bible, of course, right? So uh, even though that's, uh, you know, I'm sure most of you could have answered that question the same way, and it seems second nature to those of you who have studied the Bible and grown up reading the Bible and so forth, uh, in practice, a lot of believers act like God, uh, Jesus Christ is maybe half God and half man, or maybe he was God, he became man, and now he's God again. They don't really understand the fact that he is fully God and fully man. When he took on the human nature, being born of a virgin, uh, he became 100% man. He had to be because only a man can pay the sacrifice to solve man's sin problem. Uh, he was chosen among men. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, right? So he didn't set aside his humanity when he ascended back to heaven to sit at the right hand of the throne of God. He's fully God now. Why? Because every high priest, Hebrews tells us, is chosen among who? Men, right? So it's very important to understand that Jesus is both. And that, of course, is one of those uh, biblical antinomies or paradoxes that we've talked about uh, before. Uh, but uh, So all of our beliefs have to be built upon what does the Bible say. So all we're doing, uh, by the way, I had, uh, I was, uh, what was I looking at the other day about the, about the birth of Christ? Oh, uh, yeah, I should probably mention this too. You know, we are launching some new things at Not By Works Ministries this year, one of which is we're finally taking the plunge into social media. We've hired some 
help. Uh, my daughter Brooke is going to be working uh, for Not By Works as kind of our pretty much everything. She's going to basically do all the work and I'm going to get all the glory. That's the plan anyway. But uh, no, she has gotten Not By Works on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, which I we've never been on them. I've never been on them. Don't like them, don't want to be on them. But in, in the culture in which we live, it's really the best way to get the message out. So uh, a guy uh, tweeted, is that what you call it, when they post something on your Twitter? So anyhow, if somehow through Twitter, uh, something showed up on my Twitter page. I don't even know how it works. But, uh, and he was saying, he was doing a poll. I guess you can do that on social media. And he was asking people, did uh, Mary, did God create the egg out of nothing that the Holy Spirit then impregnated and was able to result in the uh, virgin birth of Christ? Or was it her egg? And I didn't chime in because I wasn't really even sure how. But, uh, but I don't want to get engaged in all that. But I thought, that's an obvious question. If you know your theology, you should know. It was Mary's egg. It had to be in order for Jesus to be fully human. If God had provided the egg and the sperm, Jesus would be fully divine. But he had to be, he had to be fully man and fully God. And the reason God had to provide... Uh, the seed or the, the sperm is because otherwise he would have been in sin like every other man since Adam, descended from Adam. Sin is passed on through the blood. So anyway, to me it was kind of a silly question, but it just kind of shows you the stuff that's out there uh, on social media and on the web and so forth. When people don't begin with the Bible, the question shouldn't be, what do you think? The question should be, what does the Bible say? That's the question we should be asking. So uh, we've gone through several attributes of God, one of which we started with God is eternal. Um, and uh, we talked about divine timelessness, that God is outside of time, that, uh, that, that God created time. Uh, he created time, space, and matter. Mankind is inherently temporal until this mortal puts on immortality and we leave this earth and go, enter into eternity, uh, the realm of outside of time, space, and matter. So we said the eternal God exists outside the bubble of the created universe. In fact, he created the universe. Then we said God is self-existent. Uh, you know, he has life within himself. He is life. And that's why he could create life and give life, uh, both physically and spiritually. He created physical life, obviously, in six days, uh, the creation account in Genesis, six literal 24-hour days. But he also created spiritual life, uh, because of sin, both physical and spiritual life die. Uh, you know, you, uh, you can have uh, you know, eternal life and overcome spiritual death by faith alone in Christ alone, who then regenerates us the moment we trust in Him, and we are reborn or born from above, as Jesus told Nicodemus. And as far as the physical body, you can have the resurrection of the physical body unto an eternal, uh, timeless uh, uh, immortal body uh, if you also know Christ and that will happen for believers today at the rapture and for uh, other believers at the second coming or the end of the millennium so God is the only one that can give life because he has life in himself then we said God is holy meaning set apart one of a kind um, he is uh, absent uh, from anything impure or unclean and uh, with several passages we looked at there one of my favorites is Isaiah's uh, calling to the prophetic ministry where he says, Holy, holy, holy. Or these uh, seraphim and cherubim cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Uh, God is immutable. He does not change. He's devoid of all change because change either means you're improving or deteriorating. right? 
If you're staying the same, you're not changing, right? So we talked about Sunday in uh, my message, uh, New Year's Revolution, that uh, there's one thing that we hope does change, right? There's, uh, there's uh, three things that are going to happen inevitably, one thing that will never happen, which is God will never change. But we ought to be changing. And I hope that this year, the change that you experience in your own life between you and the Lord is uh, for the better, that you're drawing closer to the Lord, that you're maturing in the faith, that you're becoming more Christ-like. I understand that in this fleshly world in which we live, sometimes it's a matter of three steps forward and two steps back. You know, we're not all always on a trajectory of consistent spiritual growth. We get in the flesh, we get bad attitudes, we get away from the Lord, we get out of His Word. Uh, hopefully those seasons are few and far between, and when they do happen, hopefully they're short-lived. But the fact of the matter is we're changing. We're growing, hopefully, or we are backsliding. One of the two. Backsliding is a biblical word. It's a good word because it gives a great word picture of, you know, you're headed one direction, but then you sort of slow down. Before long, you start to go backwards and you're not, you're not, uh, you're even regressing. Remember the writer of Hebrews in chapter 5 indicts the first century Jewish Christians for the fact that, you know, at one time you knew such and such, but now you have come again to need milk. In other words, they regressed back to where they were when they were baby Christians. God doesn't do that because He cannot improve and He cannot deteriorate. He says, I the Lord, I am the Lord and I do not change. God is infinite, without boundaries, without limits. He's not limited by His creation. He's not limited by uh, time or space. In fact, uh, Solomon prayed at the dedication of the temple, Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot uh, contain you. Then we said God is omnipotent. What does omnipotent mean? All-powerful, right? Omni, all-potent, powerful. Uh, in Revelation, in the preparation for the battle of Armageddon and the return of Christ, we read, I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and the sound of mighty thunderings. Just picture in your mind what that would sound like. Anybody ever been to the Grand, I mean, been to the uh, New York, upstate Niagara Falls? Anybody ever been to Niagara Falls? Do you remember the sound? I mean, you can hear it long before you can see it. And you sort of, you know you're there. Oh, we're here. But you don't actually see it until you kind of get in the right vantage point. Uh, but just imagine that sound and mighty thunderings. Anybody ever experienced massive thunderstorms where it's just really loud? Uh, that's what it sounded like. And what were they saying? The Lord God omnipotent reigns. And it's fitting that, that we would think of God's power when He finally, in God's divine timetable, decides to throw off uh, all of the satanic power that is currently at play. So this is at the end of the seven-year tribulation. The Antichrist has been ruling and mimicking God's power. Remember, Satan uh, and the Antichrist and the false prophet are a counterfeit trinity. In the same way we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so Satan has been trying to do everything he can since he uh, approached Adam and Eve in the garden to try to turn the world upside down. I wrote an article this week called uh, uh, An Upside Down World. And actually Harbingers picked it up. It was their top story all day yesterday and most of today. Uh, and they retitled it. But... Uh, it's in our newsletter that I'm sending out tomorrow. I encourage you to read it. It's a simple read, two, three minutes, one page. Uh, but it talks about how Satan has effectively turned the world upside down. 
So that what is evil is now good. What used to be good is now evil. What, what really is good is now evil, according to the world standard. Um, and so Satan's been doing that. It will reach a climax during the tribulation period. And then finally Christ comes back. And what do we sing? The Lord God omnipotent reigns. He's had enough. Omnipresent. What's omnipresent? God is everywhere present at all times. There's no escaping God's presence. Um, and, uh, and so we talked about uh, David in Psalm 139. Uh, is there any place he can go to escape the presence of God? And the answer is no. Uh, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? Then omniscient, which is all-knowing exactly. Uh, God possesses absolute, complete knowledge of all things, both actual and potential. Right? It's not like God has to conceive of something before he can know it. I know that's kind of hard to understand, but... But how many of you have ever found yourself in a dialogue, maybe a brainstorming session, a discussion, uh, you're troubleshooting, and someone says in the midst of that discussion, well, what about this? And you find yourself saying, whoa, I never thought about that. Good idea. Right? You ever been there? I've been there lots of times, right? God never has to do that. See, God is omniscient. He doesn't need to be fed data before he can process it and come up with a plan. He, he knows everything, and he knows everything equally well. Uh, James, when speaking at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, said, Known to God from eternity are all his works. And an anonymous psalmist said, His understanding is infinite. Right? And that brings us, we finished up the three omnis last week, and that brings us to the next one, which I want to talk about tonight which is God is love. God is love. So love describes the core essential nature of who God is. It is that attribute of the divine nature by which God is eternally moved to communicate to his creation. All of his attributes are equal. All of them are constant. He's not more gracious than he is merciful. He's not more just than he is righteous. He's all those things at the same time. But in a manner of speaking, because of the way the Bible describes it in 1 John, you, you might say that all of his attributes are saturated with love or emanate from love, if you want to say it uh, that way. And love as a divine attribute is not uh, a, an emotion, you know, uh, I'm sure we've talked about this before. You've studied it before many times. I'm sure about agape love. That's the Greek word for unconditional love. Agape. The verb is agapao, to love, or I love. And we have a hard time really understanding that. We really do. Um, because in English, we use the, the word love with such diversity. I mean, you can love ice cream. You can love the Dallas Cowboys. You can love your wife. You can love your husband. You can love snow skiing. You can love cats. I have no idea why, but you can. But those we clearly love our spouse differently than we love, you know, an animal or ice cream or a food or a sport, right? But we use the same word. In scripture, there's essentially well, in Greek there's essentially three words for love, and they're more specific. You know, brotherly love, uh, which is uh, adelphos or uh, adelphoi, uh, 
uh, is, or actually, it's, that's, that's brother, so it's phileo is the word I'm looking for. Phileo is the kind of love that you have among friends. I mean, it's, a, it's a concern, it's a affection. Uh, and then there's eros, which is uh, physical, sexual love. But agape is unconditional love. And we struggle with that because we live in a very conditional world. And, and we've been trained and programmed to think in terms of condition. It's the reason, you know, so many marriages fail is because on the front end, uh, you go into it thinking, as long as such and such, you know, we're together. When I, I used to do a ton of weddings when I was first in ministry, more traditional pastoral ministry, and I would always, during the, I, I required uh, young couples to do three sessions Nothing magical about three. Some people require a lot more than that, and that's probably good. But for me, I thought I want to cover these. Uh, actually, it was four, four sessions that I would do. But in the course of those premarital counseling sessions, I would always ask the couple the same thing. And I would ask them each in the presence of each other right there as we're sitting there. And I would ask, say, the groom-to-be uh, first, is there anything that she, so-and-so, can do that would cause you to call it quits and leave. And of course they go, oh no, I love her, put their arm around her. and they, oh, No, my sweetie, I'd never do that. Then I ask him this, or her the same thing, same response. And then I'd say, okay, uh, what if he cheats on you? And they'd get a little squirmy. And a little, uh, I, I mean, I, people make mistakes. Okay. What if he cheats on you ten times? Well, if he does that, then you know the Bible says it's okay to... First of all, no, it doesn't. Then I go, if that, if you've drawn any lines whatsoever, you don't understand unconditional love. Unconditional love means unconditional, no condition. And before you go into this marriage, you need to understand you cannot draw lines. Because what happens is, if you draw any lines whatsoever, those lines begin to move and shift. Um, you know, you know, over time, as you get to know somebody warts and flaws and all they're going to annoy you they're you're, they're going to do things you don't like and suddenly it becomes easy to marginal <laughs> what did he say did you say amen <laughs> shame on you <laughs> um so you know for example uh you know we've met when i was coming up on 31 years and it, you know it's just divorce has just never been in the discussion Murder, yeah, maybe, but not divorce, uh, uh, because it's just it's unconditional. Um, and I understand that we live in a fallen world, and there are, you know, things that happen, and we have to work with the world system. So I'm not in any way somehow uh, criticizing or looking down upon people who have been divorced. Uh, it's it's just a, a reality in our world. But what I'm saying is, God doesn't understand divorce from a spiritual perspective. But because we think in conditional terms, that then is projected on who God is. And that's why so many people struggle with the doctrine of eternal security. Because they just cannot imagine. They think somehow they've earned salvation. And then since God is a retributive God in their worldview, a conditional God, then when they blow it, they think, oh, I'm going to go to hell after all. And they think it's some kind of a quid pro quo. That tells me right there, that they don't understand unconditional love. Anybody that denies the doctrine of eternal security does not understand agape love. They just don't. So doesn't mean there aren't consequences 
for sin in the life of a believer? Absolutely there are. We've talked about that many times. God disciplines those whom he loves. And there are natural consequences. There are temporal consequences. There are physical consequences. And there are even consequences in heaven in terms of rewards or lack thereof and so forth. But when God says, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish, that's a zero-sum game. There's no asterisk. There's no kind of like the me talking to the you know, bride and groom. There's no, well, well, yeah, if that, if that extreme thing happens, well, then, yeah, I'd tell them to take a hike. You know, nothing. Unconditional means unconditional. It's not an emotion. It's a sovereign decision. And, and, and God's love is sovereign. Um, God's agape love is directed at its object, that's you and me, without regard for our worthiness. You've ever heard the phrase, the ground is level at the foot of the cross, right? So this is another problem, I think, with the common view of, of eternal salvation, whereby you have to earn it somehow or make a commitment or a pledge or a promise and if you don't live up to your end of the bargain, then you're going to hell, is that people tend to look at, you know, sinners and hastily conclude that person can't be a Christian. Look at what they've done. Look at what they're doing. And they may be involved in terrible sins because there's no sin that an unbeliever can commit that a believer might not also commit if he's catering to the flesh. And so we have this tendency to look at them and hastily say they can't possibly be the objects of God's love, be a born-again Christian, and yet somehow we're okay with the little sins that we commit every day. And, and that's ultimately a prideful place uh, to be. But God's love is not based on performance. It's based on His promise. It's a free gift. And a free gift, by definition, comes with no strings attached. If there were strings attached, then it's not a love. You know, it's not unconditional love. It's a contract, right? If you do this, I'll keep loving you. If you don't do this, I'll stop loving you. If you ever do this, I'm going to you know, stop loving you. So God's love is, is foundational. Again, it's the same you know, as all of his attributes. They're all you know, equal. But it's one that I think uh, we need to spend more time resonating on. The key passage, of course, is 1 John 4. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. The most unchristian thing a person can do is to be unloving. Let me say that again. The most unchristian thing a person can do is to be unloving. So it cuts right to the heart of who God in Christ is. Right? Notice what he says. In this the love of God was manifested toward us. That God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we loved God. Again, it's not a you know, quid pro quo. But that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. What does propitiation mean? I heard something, but I'm deaf. What did you say? Uh, yes, but it's more specific than that. The word substitute, that's what the uh, person said, uh, is has to do with more the idea of atonement, that he's our substitute in our place, right? Propitiation is a little more specific than that. What is it? Anybody else have a thought? Payment. Well, payment would be redemption, uh, would be the biblical word there that he's 
paid our penalty on our behalf. Uh, these are they're all related: atonement, redemption, propitiation, reconciliation. All these are kind of corollaries, but propitiation has a very narrow meaning. It means to satisfy God's wrath, the satisfaction of wrath. And it goes back to Leviticus 16 and the Day of Atonement when they would take two goats and one would be the goat of propitiation and one would be the goat of expiation, if you remember. And they would draw, they would cast lots and the one goat that would be the goat of propitiation would be the one that was sacrificed and that would satisfy God's wrath for the nation of Israel. And then the other goat that was the lucky one, as Calvin would say, uh, he would be set, taken outside the camp, way out in the wilderness and set free. X is the preposition out or out from. Uh, so expiation, out from among us. Uh, and so that, would symbol, that was to symbolize the removal of uh, guilt. The removal of guilt. So in the New Testament, Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins. By the way, you see 1 John 4.10 on the screen there. Another verse that I should have put up is, is 1 John 2, verse 2, which says, uh, He himself, 1 John 2, 2, He himself, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. He is the only one that can satisfy the wrath of God. When he shed his blood, God's wrath was appeased. And that's why, by the way, you see, if you understand the concept of wrath, and I've talked about this before, we have uh, it's, uh, several charts or a couple of charts in our chart book that describe this. But if you understand the biblical teaching on wrath, believers are never under the wrath of God. Never. You see that in Romans. We are not sons of wrath or children of wrath. We are children of God. God's wrath is directed at unbelievers. And that is why, you know, I can't help but bring in end times prophecy. So here I go again. But that is why believers cannot possibly go through the seven-year tribulation because that seven-year tribulation is referred to as the great day of God's wrath. It is the outpouring of God's prophetic wrath. It's the culmination of His wrath. You know, right now, God's wrath is being held back. You know, God is certainly entitled uh, to pour out His wrath on the sinful world, is He not? But He's long-suffering. He's waiting. But after the rapture, when the Antichrist takes the helm, that final seven-year period referred to as the 70th week of Daniel will begin to commence, will commence, and God's wrath will be poured out in the seal and the trumpet and the bold judgments. In Revelation chapter 6, when the seal judgments begin, the people cry out, who will hide us from the wrath of God? It's being poured out. The Old Testament prophets call it the great day of the Lord's wrath, the day of wrath, the day of the Lord's wrath, and so forth. Yeah. <coughs> Unleashed on a country as a result of God withholding blessings. 
Yeah, so, uh, I mean, I love Mark. He's a dear friend. We've worked together many times, and so I, I, who am I to differ with him? I think what he's talking about there is God's wrath can be uh, targeted nationally, but it can also be targeted individually. And theologically, no believer as an individual can ever be under the wrath of God. Uh, so that's true in the Old and New Testament. So there were times when Israel, as a nation, faced God's wrath, but not everybody in the nation of Israel was a believer. We can all agree on that, right? You know, sometimes this is an important point because sometimes people lump together national Israel with individual Jews. Um, this, this, every human being, Jew and Gentile alike, from Adam forward, has to get saved eternally the same way by faith. So you didn't get an automatic pass into heaven just because you're a Jew in the line of David. So, uh, or in the line of Abraham, the seed of Abraham. So, uh, so in that case, you know, yeah, I would say God can pour out His wrath, uh, you know, in, you know, discriminatively upon certain nations and, and places. But that's different. That's national wrath. That's different than individual. But what sets the tribulation apart is that's global. It's not like He's just, you know his wrath is being poured out on one nation it is global and so there's no place to hide right uh so again go back to the nation of israel as an example in egypt uh you know those the jews were able to put blood on the doorpost to prevent that particular manifestation of god's wrath from affecting them well when it's global there's really no place to hide so I think when you understand and trace the, the theology of the wrath of God, you understand that we as a children of God are not sons of wrath, but sons of faith, sons of God, children of God, first, or John 1, 12. And therefore, we cannot be suffering the wrath of God during the tribulation. So, I mean, there are many other reasons. I, I talked about this uh, yesterday on my Christian Underground News Network a podcast, but if you flip over to... Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 10. He says, uh, We should wait for His Son from heaven who raised Him from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. He's talking there about the tribulation. Uh, and then in the same book, in the same letter, chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he repeats, God did not appoint us to wrath but to obtain salvation. That word salvation there, remember, means deliverance. Not talking here about individual eternal salvation, but he's talking about delivering the church from the wrath of God that's going to be poured out on, on the earth uh, through the Lord Jesus Christ, who's going to call us to meet Him in the air, which He has just talked about in chapter 4, that great reunion in the sky. So, uh, you know, God is love uh, and Jesus Christ, God's Son, is our propitiation. He satisfies the wrath of God. If you've ever, uh, and I'm sure we've all experienced this, been in a heated, I mean really heated personal argument with someone. Angry. You know, they're angry at you, you're angry at them. And, you know, after a period of time, cooler heads prevail and usually... You know, one person takes the initiative and comes back and says, you know what, I'm so sorry. I blew it. I was in the flesh. I just, 
uh, you know, I was really out of line. And in that moment, it's just like the tension is released. It's just like, you know, both parties just go, you know, they take a breath and, and, and the wrath dissipates and you can have a constructive resolution or reconciliation. Well, when Christ paid this penalty for the sins of all the world, past, present, and future, by the way, I mean, every human being is under the wrath of God apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that wrath has to be satisfied. But when Jesus Christ shed His blood, God kind of went, and now His wrath is not, you know, it's, it's been satisfied okay, for those who know the Lord. But believe me, His wrath is being stored up and built up. And someday, uh, He's going to make all things uh, equal and all the inequities and unfairness and injustice of world, the world will Will, will come. Uh, so uh, God's love applied. I mean, boy, we could spend hours talking about the implications of God's love. But the first thing that comes to my mind is because God is love, His justice and His holiness are counterbalanced. See, if it weren't for God's love, every one of us would spend eternity in hell. Because that's what justice demands, right? Justice means getting what you deserve. Mercy means not getting what you deserve, not getting punishment you deserve. And grace means getting a gift you don't deserve. So God's love counterbalances His justice. And that's the reason, you know, we, we, we sometimes have a tendency to think of God in terms of fairness and will say that's not fair I mean who among us hasn't had those moments where we say God that's just not fair but we need to catch ourselves when we do that because we really don't want to have a conversation with God about fairness because if that's what we really want we all deserve hell that's fair that's fair God doesn't owe anybody heaven it's God's love and grace and mercy that make it possible for us to overcome the predicament we got ourselves in. See, God doesn't send anybody to hell. Uh, I talk about this in my book, Top Ten Reasons Some People Go to Hell. A lot of, especially skeptics and people that don't believe in God, they, they will say, you know, if God's so loving, why does He send people to hell? He doesn't send anybody to hell. He's not willing that any should perish, Second Peter 3. He's doing everything He can to help people not go to hell. But He can't force you. All He can do is make the way. Provide the gift. And it's your choice, just like it was man's choice to obey or disobey God to begin with. How many of you think God forced Adam and Eve to sin? Nobody. God gave man a choice. And just as we had a choice to sin, we have a choice to accept God's remedy for our sin. And uh, if He were to force us to believe it through no volition of our own, uh, then that's you know, forced love is not love. So God doesn't send anybody to hell. Who sends people to hell? You do. Anybody that ends up in hell has nobody to blame but themselves. Because God says, whosoever will may come. And they rejected the, the offer. Uh, yeah, did you have something? God's love um, does not necessarily imply His acceptance. Then, right? God's love does not necessarily apply, imply His acceptance. No, of course not. Yeah. He wants us to be holy as He is holy. God never 
condones sin. He never can wink and nod at sin. He uh, takes our disobedience serious. But in the same way that a parent, uh, which of course all analogies fall short because no, nothing can compare to God, right? An analogy is a comparison. But at least most of us can understand the parent-child relationship because we've been one or the other or both, right? So in the same way that you can discipline your children and still love them, but you discipline them because you love them, if you're doing it right, you know, uh, God can be displeased with what we're doing and grieved, you know, uh, Paul says, grieve not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. Uh, we can be dis- God can be displeased by our behavior, grieved by our behavior, but still love us, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, so the great question, uh, going back to the comments I made about marriage, and the question is, where is the line between loving someone and protecting? Well, that's that's like saying, where is the line between, you know, a railroad train and an apple? It's completely different things. Uh, obviously, if a person is in an abusive relationship, their life is in danger, or their children's life, they've got to get out of that situation. Absolutely. And as I said, we live in an imperfect world, and sometimes divorce is, there's no other option. And, you know, that, that's not God's ideal. God's ideal is not divorce, but sometimes man's reality and God's ideal aren't the same thing. Uh, but what I'm saying is, you know, you, love is irrespective of that. You can still love your enemy, as Jesus said to do. You can still love, you know, the, the offender. So the, the, the classic definition of forgiveness is, uh, which forgiveness and love, I know they're technically different, but they're, forgiveness is born out of unconditional love. You know, forgiveness is seeing the needs of the offender more than the wounds of the offense. So absolutely, if you're in a dangerous situation, you've got you to get out of that situation. And I've counseled people in those situations multiple times. Uh, but that's not that's a different issue than love. Uh, you know, think about what we've done to God. And he never says enough's enough. He, he, he doesn't stop loving us. So we've got to absolutely love him. And, and really, my point in terms of the premarital counseling was just that. You know. You cannot draw lines to where you say, I'm only going because whether you realize it or not, when you draw lines, you're basically saying. My love is conditional. As long as you don't do this or keep doing this, I'll love you. And, uh, and that's why, you know, we have such a high divorce rate. Uh, but clearly, if a person is in danger, then, you know, you've got to do what you've got to do to protect yourself from that. Yeah. That's a great question. Uh, I mean, seriously, that's a deep Deep thought. Um, there used to be a Saturday Night Live segment called Deep Thoughts. That's why I chuckled. Sorry. Um, no, it. Uh, the question is, is a human being capable of unconditional love? I would say we must be capable of it because we're commanded to do it, and God wouldn't command us something to not do. But I, I don't think it's automatic or consistent. I think you know we see pictures of that 
at various times in, in, in life experience, and we've all witnessed unconditional love, you know. But uh, it's extremely hard, and I think it's, uh, it's momentary, it's circumstantial. It doesn't, agape love does not characterize who we are at all times the way it does God. But in the same way that we cannot achieve any of uh, God's uh, attributes, because we're made in the image of God, so we're supposed to be just, we're supposed to be righteous, we're supposed to be you know, loving, we're supposed to be holy. We can't achieve any of that perfectly. We are to strive to do that. And I think at times we can, we can do that. We can exhibit unconditional love. Uh, but yeah, you're right. It's it's hard, and you know, it's like I think it was Tim LaHaye, it might not have been him, but whoever it was wrote the book Love Is a Choice. I think unconditional love is not a feeling; it's a decision. And when you've been hurt and wronged, you, you know, you got to sort of just make yourself do it, and that's not easy. Uh, for God, it comes natural because it's His essence, but for us, it's it's difficult and. You know, I, I don't want to get into too many details or stories, but, you know, Wendy and I have experienced, like everybody, you know, tough journey in life, and we've had some, we've been really deeply hurt at times. We've been, uh, gone through some tough times, and our family has over 31 years. And, you know, there are people that I still struggle to love. I'll just be honest with you. People that when I think of them, you know, which is not often, but they, their, their thoughts of them cross my mind. You know how your mind just sometimes something pops into your mind? And, you know, Wendy will tell you my whole countenance changes. I mean, we can be just driving along the radio and I'm just thinking, meditating, driving along this road and looking out the windshield and just thinking and all of a sudden, you know, you're thinking about this and then this and then this leads to this and this leads to that. All of a sudden some memory or bad experience comes to mind and I'll just literally start gripping the steering wheel tighter, my countenance will change, and Wendy will, what, what happened? what's wrong? And I'll kind of snap out of them and go, oh, I'm just thinking about old so-and-so. And, it, and their very name makes me, and that's not healthy, that's not unconditional love, but it's in times like that that you have to say, you know what, you know, that's the way I come across to God sometimes, and He still loves me, and so I'm going to love Him. And, and hold that thought for one second. And that's why, for me, and some of you have known me long enough to see this happen, I get very defensive when I perceive that people in our flock are being unloving to someone else for whatever the reason. If, if I even sense ungraciousness or judgmentalism or legalism, or it just bothers me. Not to say that I don't do the same thing, and you, know, you guys will appreciate I'm a high D, which means I can very easily see the mistakes in others, and I tend to be blinded to them in myself, so I get that. I'm not saying that I have don't have the same problem, but when I see it in people, it just bothers me because I go, you know, let's be gracious. Let's be gracious to one another. Yeah? You know, Judy's question made me think of this. So, I read an attributes of book, attributes of God book a while ago, and they took the attributes and put them into categories, communicable and non-communicable. And so, the non-communicable. I, I will, as a human, never be omnipotent or omnipresent. So that will never happen in my life. Um, but God is love and can love, and I can love. 
And all these communicable act, you know, attributes are things that we as humans can get glimpses of. And there, there is some relationship to God. But again, it's never perfect, and it's never all the time. And that kind of helped me sort through some of that when it relates to the attributes. Yeah, so the comment is the sometimes in theology books you'll see God's attributes uh, categorized as communicable and incommunicable. Uh, and I think that's very helpful to think in those terms. But another correlation, and I'm looking up to call up that chart right now, that's why on the screens it went blank. But um, when you think about God, mankind being made in the image of God, um, you see... Uh, you see a correlation between the attributes of God and the, you know, mankind's uh, nature. Uh, sorry, I know it's here. Just give me a second here. Uh, let me search for it. Because I think this is helpful. You've, I think I've used it before. Yeah, here we go. Okay. Um, and so I think that's very true. Like you said, we're not ever going to be omnipresent. But in the sense that, uh, or maybe omnipotence is a better word. I would have, I'd have to think about omnipresent. But omnipotent, we're never going to be all-powerful. But we have power that any other created thing doesn't have. We are more powerful than the other creator. So there's a corollary uh, there between God's attributes. And so this gets into uh, the Imago Dei. So let me call this up. Uh, and let's make sure our live streamers are seeing. Yeah, so the Imago Dei, which is Latin for what? Image of God, right? So this is the theological term for what we read about in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. That God made man in his image. Now, I've talked before, I should have grabbed that chart too while I was there, but when it says God made, a, let us make man in our image, he doesn't mean let us make man just like us. And some people have taught that, like Kenneth Hagin and others, that we're all just little gods, right? That's not at all what he's saying. It, it, gets, it, it misunderstands the, the uh, possessive pronoun our. So what God is, what, what, and I have a, a chart on this. Uh, let me see if I can get it, sorry. Because I'm much better at diagramming things than I am at describing them. Um, the, what, what God is saying when he says, let us make man in our image, is that God spoke the world into existence. He created all of these things, plant life, sea life, animal life, uh, four-footed beasts, and so on. And then uh, when it came to mankind, he, had, he, he was more deliberate. He took more time, if you will. Um, uh, he, he, he he's created a pattern according to which he, he created mankind. So the image here isn't God. The image is the pattern that God created. So I could say, you know, God, when he said, let us create man in our image, he wasn't saying, let us create man exactly like us. He's saying, we came up with this pattern, this divine design, and he's saying, let us make man according to that. So here's the way I di diagram it out. Sorry, this chart is a little off here. Uh, you know, we have the triune God, the image, and then man. And the Bible says man is creating according to that image. Well, what is that image? 
it's my view that it's a pattern. It's a divine design. So a lot of people think when God said, let us create man in our image, what he meant was let us create man just like us. No, God conceived of a ideal pinnacle of creation, the crown jewel of creation, designed it, patterned it, and then he said, we're going to make man like that. So the result of that is what theologians call the Imago Dei. And so you see God is sovereign. These are just a few of the uh, attributes, uh, some of which we've talked about, some of which we're going to talk about. But these are some of God's attributes. And mankind, this pattern after this image that God made, has corresponding attributes. Man may not, as Greg said, be ultimately sovereign, but we have volition, right? You know, a uh, you know a a turkey can't decide whether or not we're going to eat it for Thanksgiving, right? Doesn't really have a choice, right? Uh, mankind has a choice. Um, I could have used another analogy about scats, cats, and skinning, but I didn't go there. Um, uh, God is righteous. Mankind has morality. You know, animals don't have a moral compass. That's why they talk about the law of the jungle and animal animal nature. It means that there's no regard for morality, right? But we do. Uh, and again, we're not as righteous as God, and nor will we ever be. But we have morality. God is just. We have a sense of justice, right? You know, the zebras don't ever huddle up in a in a group and get together and lament the fact it's just not fair that those lions keep killing us, you know? They just flee for their lives, right? Um, God is all wise or om omniscient, we might say. Yet, and mankind has intellect and logic. God is powerful. We have abilities and power. I mean, I never saw cats land a man on the moon, you know? I'm not entirely sure we did either, but that's another story. We'll leave that... Leave that alone. God is love. Uh, God is love, and mankind has relationships, right? Uh, God is creative. Mankind has expression. God is spirit. We have spirituality, unlike any other created things. You know, that's why any other created thing, animals or plants or whatever, when they die, they cease to exist. They don't have an eternal aspect, right? We have a spiritual, immaterial aspect that lives on forever. And God is eternal life. We have eternal life if we're made right with Him. And what happened at the fall is all of these, uh, after these characteristics of the nature of man became corrupted. See? Once Adam and Eve sinned, now, you know, we, all of these are flawed. And after 6,000 years, they become more and more flawed, right? You know? And that's why in the article I wrote uh, yesterday that you, you'll get tomorrow if you get our newsletter, you can just go to notbyworks.org and uh, it's on the highlight banner. You know, we've turned the world upside down. It doesn't take long for depravity to get the upper hand. You know, in the past, you know, sin was done under cover of darkness. It was less common. It was not as obvious. Now it's just, it's blatant. It's everywhere. In fact, what's rare today is to find godliness and righteousness. That's becoming what's rare. Uh, so anyway, you know, that, that was a great question. That I think it was Judy that asked, or was it Ken? About... Oh, was it? Okay. I was loving a Yeah. 
That, that, there you go. That's a very loving thing to do to give him credit. But this concept of can we? This all this little excursus here started because we asked the question, you know, can we really ever express unconditional love? And the answer is yes, we can, but we'll never do it perfectly or consistently. Yeah. I guess I've always kind of just glossed over or misunderstood created in the image of God. Because image to me means picture. It is. Mm -hmm. Or a portrait or uh, likeness or looking looking like. You know, and you explained it with a pattern. Yeah, so uh, it just this just occurred to me. Um, it's not when it says our image, it's not the image that is God. It's the image that belongs to God. That's what I mean, right? <laughs> so God owns the image. God is not the image. So it's our image. God, the triune God, it's plural there. Let us create man in our image. Our idea. Uh, yeah, the image that we created. Not so. Our image isn't an image of us. It's an image that belongs to us. Yeah, I've misunderstood. Yeah, no, I think most people do, and that's what leads to some bad theology, like I talked about, thinking that we're all little gods, or some people think, like uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, that we become gods and so forth. That that's not at all. It's just that if you read the creation account, when God got to mankind, it was the highest pinnacle of creation. It was, we're the only ones to whom he said, you were made in our image. And again, it's, it's the, that means not the image that is us, the image that belongs to us, ours, our image, right? So, um, and, and I might add, uh, since we were talking a little bit about marriage and you asked that great question to kind of bring that on even more, when God created Adam, he, he, for the first time in the creation account, looked at what he had made and said, this is not good. Remember that? Every time. God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. He looks at Adam and he said, it is not good that man should be alone. And in the Hebrew, that jumps off the page at you as a break in the pattern. And the point is, mankind was not complete, was not finished until Eve was created. She's the crown jewel of creation it wasn't an afterthought certainly wasn't for adam right it was god's plan all along because it wasn't good i'm not done yet he says right and why do you think god put adam to sleep when he performed the ribectomy you ever thought about that I love you. You're you're so gracious the way you word things. She said, "I thought it'd be a little uncomfortable for him to have his rib taken out while he's awake." Uh, no, uh, yeah. I mean, generally speaking, you kind of think, "Yeah, if I'm going to perform major abdominal surgery, I'd like to be put under, right?" But listen, this was before sin. There was no pain. There was no pain on planet Earth. God could have reached in, ripped out a rib, and Adam would have never felt any pain whatsoever. Why did God put Adam to sleep? A deep sleep, by the way, the text says, which comes in handy when you're 
newly married and have infants that are waking up in the middle of night, you can say, oh, honey, I'm in a deep sleep, just like the Bible says I should be. You go get her. You know. But anyway. Um, no. Not, I mean, we don't. Let me say, this is my speculation. I can't cite chapter and verse. This is just my best guess. Is that God didn't want Adam to have any say in this. He didn't want to tell God, you know, blonde hair, blue eyes, a little more here, a little less there, you know. He, this was totally God's doing because it was God's image. It was just like huh? marriage. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Man doesn't get a say, right? Good point, Paul, just like marriage. No, um, I really believe God's, obviously his plan was all along to create male and female. He tells us that in the summary passage in chapter 1, then chapter 2 gives us the details. Chapter 1, what does he say? Male and female created he them. So I think this was God's doing, he, and, and God created Eve, and then, you know, and then the rest, the rest was history. And so, uh, so I just want to point out that in creating man in our image, the highest pinnacle, you know, Eve is the crown jewel. That's why I counsel young people, you know, obviously never raise a hand, never raise your voice, treat your wife like the precious crown jewel that she is you know and again we're all human we make mistakes you know i've certainly yelled at my wife um but uh we just have this uh i don't know in our culture this perspective that somehow women are subservient or somehow in some way less it's if anything it's the opposite Adam was incomplete and not good until God said, okay, now. And then what did he say after it was all done and he looked at everything? Very good. good, Exactly. Yeah. But didn't he also say that Adam needed a helper? Sure. Yeah, we are totally equal, but there's functional differences, you know. Uh, and, And that's God's divine design too, you know. I'll never give birth, right? I'll never have a nurturing nature of, of a mother. Now, yeah. this is, I know, that's what I was just about to say. That's another reason that I think this gender surrender movement that I talk about in chapter 13 of volume 2 is the most demonic expression so far ever on planet Earth. That it's, it's the sort of the final stage of Satan trying to turn everything, even you know, gender, on its head. Uh, and I think it's demonic. But... Yeah, there's functional differences. There's functional differences in the church. There's functional differences in marriage. Uh, there's you know, order of relationship. Uh, as I've talked about many times, it goes God-man, husband-wife, parent-child, uh, and then person-government. Those, the, those are the different institutions and, and relationships that you have. You ought never say you got to obey your government more than God. You, ought, you never say i got to cater to my children more than my spouse, and so forth and so on. So, any other thoughts before we wrap up? Yeah. Well, just a thought, too. I mean, God gives good gifts. And sometimes He gives things to us that we never knew we needed. Yes. So, maybe that was part of putting in this deep. Yeah, so the comment is, you know, God gives good gifts and, and gives us things we didn't know we needed them, and maybe that was part of why He put them to sleep. Uh, I think, I mean, that could be. I think also it could be, that's the reason he had the animals parade in front of him, was to show him, look, you're not going to find what you need to be complete anywhere until I give it to you, right? And uh, 
So uh, just a couple more comments about love. Uh, again, as I said, God's love counterbalances his justice and his holiness. Neither one overpowers the other. If God was all love, that would be universalism. If God was all justice, that would be fatalism. And, you know, in the garden, we see all of them together. You know, God's justice meant death occurred, but yet in his love, he provided a covering for Adam and Eve. And, of course, the ultimate covering is through Jesus Christ. And then finally, because God's love is unconditional, we have eternal security, like I said. Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Uh, you know, Christ, Christians do bad things. Some Christians do really bad things. And that's tragic, that's abhorrent, that offends and, and grieves a holy God. But even that cannot separate us from God's love because our relationship with Him is not based upon our performance. It's based upon His unconditional decision. And, uh, and thank God for that. Thank God for that because, I mean, we're all guilty of sin as believers and, you know, just we'd spend our life wondering, have I crossed the line? Have I gone too far? You know. All right, well, uh, we went a little over tonight. Sorry about that. But uh, we'll pick up next week with uh, our 10th one, which is God is Righteous. That's where we'll uh, pick up next week. And uh, don't forget, um, we've got uh, about three more, what is it, four more weeks to uh, 11th, 18th, 25th. So three more weeks on Wednesday nights to finish this series. And then we'll shift it to Tuesday nights on Tuesday, January 31st. It'll shift to a prophecy theme. And a little bit different format, but I'm really looking forward to it. So mark your calendars and invite your friends. We will live stream that too. So in case you ever can't be here or if you're not in Denver or you're some other place that likes to live stream these, we will definitely live stream those. All right, well, thanks a bunch. Uh, God bless.